Hello, and welcome to Saga Things Companion Series, where we're talking about the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In these shorter episodes, which we're going to call our Saga Briefs, we're going to be recording sideline conversations about the world of the sagas of the Icelanders. We're going with Saga Briefs, huh? Saga Briefs it is. All right. It captures that uh, essence of shortness, but also uh, a little bit of legal language there. It's clever. There you go. Clever. There you go. That's, uh, that's exactly what I was thinking it was. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we weighed uh, a couple of different title choices, like, uh, what was yours? Moot Points? Oh, yes. Moot Points. Yes. Um, other Things, Little Things. Yeah. Uh, and Thotter Thing, I think, was the other option. So we settled uh, on Saga Briefs. If you've got a better idea for what these shorts should be called, <laughs> then feel free to send us a, a suggestion. Uh, but in the meantime, they're going to be called Saga Briefs. Right. And these will appear on the site as often as we find time for them. Uh, hopefully, they'll be... One or maybe two a month in addition to the regular episodes. Oh, you are very ambitious to think that we can accomplish well, a, a real episode plus two of these in one month. No one ever conquered anything by being shy. <laughs> so um, this first brief that we're going to do, it grew up out of a reference in the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons. It's a reference to torture, John. <laughs> <laughs> sounds so foreboding. Well, you know, violence sells. Now, <laughs> incidentally, if you're a little child... Or if you're the sort of person who's disturbed by descriptions of terrible things being done to the human body, you might want to skip this episode. This is our first saga brief. Do you really want to discourage people from listening to it? Well, you know, I don't really expect anyone to stop listening, John. Disclaimers never really work. If anything, they actually encourage people to keep going. Now, if we could just manage to sneak in some nudity here, I think we'd more than double our listenership. Oh, (laughs) depends on whose nudity it is. That's absolutely I think we true. Could, we could tell them that we're nude right now as an audio, but uh, no, we, that I don't would think that would help our listenership at all. No, that would in fact decrease our listenership. But uh, so there's your, there's your warning, anyways. Right, right. So what we're looking at today is the semi-legendary practice of the blood eagle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the blood eagle is, well, to yeah. be honest, it's complicated. <laughs> it's it's uh, figuring out what it is is part of the problem. Yeah. The practice of blood-eagling a victim, it shows up in a number of primary texts, and so they claim it has a historical origin. We see it in Ragnar's saga and the tale of Ragnar's sons. We also see it in Orkninga's saga, Saxo Grammaticus Gesta Denorum, Abbo of Fleury's account of the martyrdom of St. Edmund. Um, Heims Kringla as well, uh, Knut's Droppa. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, there's a surprising uh, number of references, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And of course, uh, one thing they all have in common is that they're written quite a long time after the event itself is supposed to have taken place. Mm -hmm. And so the trick is sorting out what exactly the Blood Eagle was and whether it ever actually happened. Right. Uh, Most of the descriptions agree that it involves cutting into the back of a victim and that the victim dies as a result of what's done to it. But beyond that, there's a fair amount of artistic license. Mm -hmm. So why don't we start with a modern interpretation of the Blood Eagle that's kind of based on all these versions from the past. Um, Mm -hmm. I think you've got a version from a modern novel, so why don't we begin there? Okay, Uh, so this is a passage from an historical fantasy novel by Harry Harrison. Uh, The book was published in 1993. It's called The Hammer and the Cross. Mm -hmm. The Hammer and the Cross? Wait a minute. Yes. (laughs) Let, let me see this this book cover. Uh, okay, let me hold up the, the cover for oh, you. Yeah, hold it up so I can uh, see. All right. Yeah. What do we got uh, there? Okay. And what you see, yeah, so what you see on the cover of this uh, paperback is a 30-foot-tall figure who I'm assuming is Thor based on his <laughs> hammer and his big, long, red beard. Yeah. Uh, and then another figure with a spear, also 30 feet tall, uh, with a spear 
and a gray beard, who I'm assuming is Odin. Yeah, and he's got uh, a uh, a nice hat with uh, wings on it. Right, a winged helmet. Oh, t- that's how uh, we know he's a Viking. Sure, absolutely. It's how we. Yeah, he gives him his 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 Wagnerian uh, charm. Uh, yes, and then in between them, looking to be about four feet tall, is the main character in the book, uh, a guy named Chef, who sort of brings together the Scandinavians and the Christians oh. in a kind of new religion called the Way. Oh, the Way. So so it's not mm-hmm. a uh, it's not a competition between the hammer and the cross. It's the unification of the hammer and the cross. Sort of. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, nobody wants to listen to it, though. I right? see. So this is clearly this is... A, a, it's a historical novel. It's practically right, history. Well... <laughs> so it's sort of stranger in a strange land in the ninth century. Beautiful. Uh, Right. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so it's set in the ninth century during the Ragnarsson's invasion of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Oh, interesting. So it's very timely for what we've been talking about. Absolutely. Now, does this involve uh, uh, my buddy Ivar the Boneless? It does indeed. And, in uh, fact, Ivar is going to figure prominently in this passage. Okay. Uh, so the section we're interested in is King Edmund of East Anglia. Uh, he's been captured by the Ragnarsons, and he's describing now the Blood Eagle that he expects them to use to kill him the next day. Now, why does he know about the Blood Eagle already? Uh, apparently, it's a sort of already legendary torture method uh, in this world. Okay. Uh, so, tomorrow, Ivar prepares a new fate for me. They tell me that he meant to save this for the man who killed their father, for Ella of Northumbria, but they have decided that I married it just as much. They will take me out and lay me on their altar face down. In the hollow of my back, Ivar will place a sword. Then, you have felt how your ribs make a house of bone and how each of the ribs fits into its place on the backbone. Ivar will cut each of them away, working up from the lowest to the highest. They say he will use a sword only for the first cut. After that, he will use a hammer and chisel. When he has cut them all away, he will cut the flesh free, and then he will put his hands in and pull the ribs up and out. I expect I will die then. They say he can keep a man alive to that point if he is careful not to cut deep. But when they pull the ribs out, your heart must burst. When it is done, they pull your lungs out of your back, and then turn the ribs out so they look like a raven's wings or an eagle's, and they call it Cutting the Blood Eagle. So there you go. Such an interesting version. He's kind of combining all the possibilities there, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, as we'll see, uh, bits and pieces of this seem to come from a lot of different primary texts. Yeah, I'm particularly surprised by the, the, the reference to kind of spreading the ribs out. They're talking about cutting mm-hmm. them open and then spreading them out and that those are the wings whereas in a lot of the um the other sources i think the wings are kind of the lungs being pulled out from the back yes yeah and i think what we're looking at here uh is somebody who's got I mean, he's doing both right because he's got the ribs being pulled out yeah. and the lungs being pulled out mm-hmm. um and sort of giving us multiple options for what the wings might be uh, or maybe they're supposed to collectively give us that impression yeah yeah either way it's a, a very graphic and horrible way to die now, did you yes, it is. did you read this ridiculous novel and uh, and do they actually uh, give King Edmund the Blood Eagle? Um, it's actually sort of happens off screen, right? That description is considered sufficient. Oh, so uh, he then dies, but we don't actually watch the torture. Okay, all right. Uh, and King Ayla is later killed with a different but equally horrific method. I, I went around the campus and talked to nursing faculty. I talked to some of the um, anatomy people. And just mm-hmm. kind of presented them. It was really funny kind of walking into their offices and saying, hey, uh, have you ever heard of the Blood Eagle? Um, um, but anyway. The glory I, of having a medievalist for a colleague. Yeah. So just I, come by and ask about random torture. Yeah. So I described this thing to them uh, a bit. And the majority of them were, first of all, shocked 
that I was asking them something <laughs> as, like this. As any right-thinking person would be. We're awfully blasé about this whole, like, cutting somebody open from behind and ripping their lungs out. Yeah. Uh, but normal people, I think, non-medievalists, uh, react with, I think, appropriate shock and horror. Yeah. Anyway, so after they got over their initial shock, I, I asked them about the feasibility of this kind of thing. And they had a, mm-hmm. a bunch of different responses. Um, their first response was to say that they don't believe <laughs> that the lungs would work very well. Um, mm-hmm. Once the the back is open that way, basically because right the the chest cavity works and the lungs work on negative pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it's not just the filling up of air, but it, your your diaphragm pulling down fills your mm-hmm. lungs with air and stuff like that. So once you pull them out the back, um, they're not going to collapse. Inflate. Yeah. They're not going to do anything. Yeah. They're just going to be these flappy bags. Um, right. And I also asked about the possibility of even pulling the lungs out in that way, and they thought that mm-hmm. yes, it could be done, but it would be very very hard and very messy. And not very aesthetically pleasing, which is, I think, what the the saga <laughs> authors seem to be going for. Are they are they going for aesthetically pleasing? Is that I sort think of it's supposed to? It's look, important that when you rip somebody's lungs out through their back, it look nice. I think so. I think mm-hmm. when I imagine it, yeah, it should look cool. But the reality is going to be a very messy, um, torn lung issue. Right. <laughs> right. Well, so what we're, I mean, what it, that sounds like then is that it's very likely that these are. Much as when we talked about a while back, torture in Provincial Saga, mm-hmm. there were these little details that made it seem like this person, the writer, had really thought about or had even perhaps seen yeah. somebody suffering through this torture. Yeah. Uh, right, was... The bloodshot eyes, the red face, all these kinds of things. Um, this is almost the opposite, right? That the details that were given almost suggest a person who has never seen this done, yeah. has no knowledge of it being done, hasn't even seen perhaps an image of it being done. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think uh, one of the things that the, 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 the faculty pointed out was just the sheer problem. This was primarily the nursing faculty that was bringing this up. Trying mm-hmm. to get through the rib cage with a sword like we have in, in, in the descriptions. Right. Uh, the carving, I, I, they said that that's very unlikely. That you could do that. Right. Very hard when to we get s- to the bone in that way. Um, mm. So it was fascinating that Harry Harrison added the idea of the hammer, t- hammer and chisel. And chisel. Yeah. You need that because getting through that rib cage is going to be hard work. And none of the right. sources seem to treat it as real hard work. It's just some matter of fact. They just carved mm. straight through there. Um, that's just not how the human body works. So while a sword maybe isn't able to cut through the, the rib cage mm-hmm. in the way that you want, it would be very awkward to work with. I did point out to them that Vikings like to use axes. And they said, oh, an axe? Yeah, huh. you could probably get it done with an axe. Um, so they were, they were a little bit more Fair enthusiastic enough. about that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, they said um, there's, there's very, it's very unlikely that the person would be able to be alive while, uh, by the end of that process. Well, I think that, sure. that goes without saying. Absolutely. Uh, and we do have just a handful of depictions of people being tortured in a manner that might possibly be a blood eagle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one of the uh, stones found in Jotland, Sweden, uh, is actually a depiction of a man sort of lying on his stomach while another man uses a weapon on his back. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but, of course, that's consistent with any of the options uh, that we've laid out. That could just be including some, someone stabbing him in the back, right? Right. Well, it's it looks ritualistic. I mean, okay. it looks like sort of a gathering of people to to watch and so forth. But it could still be a dead person that they're desecrating post mortem. It could still be uh, someone having an eagle carved into their back rather than something being pulled. Then the ribs been broken off and pulled out. Mm-hmm. Um, it could simply be, frankly, uh, though I doubt this is the case. It could be a ritualistic tattooing. Based on the picture that I'm seeing. I mean, this is, you know, that we're not being given sort of gouts of blood and people screaming uh, and so forth. Right. So 
Uh, the visual evidence certainly doesn't contradict anything that you're learning from your colleagues. And in fact, suggests that if anything, it may have been something relatively tame. Mm-hmm. Perhaps something like just that cutting yeah. uh, or just that desecration. Yeah, I kind of feel like if this thing did happen, it is just a simple carving of a picture of an eagle mm-hmm. in someone's back. Mm-hmm. Whether they're alive or dead doesn't really matter to me. I think that mm-hmm. that seems like something that you, you could feasibly do, that it would come into your imagination to do. Um, mm-hmm. The very elaborate spreading of the ribs and all that stuff just doesn't strike me as terribly realistic. And, of course, it's just sort of piling on to – I mean, the name Blood Eagle gives it that kind of uh, – that foreboding – uh, kind of horror. Yeah. And then piling on those details of the ribs being broken off one by one while the victim is alive, uh, the lungs being pulled out, and only at that point dying. Mm-hmm. Um, these are sort of just details that make it just that much more horrifying. Absolutely. The same reason that people go and see the Saw movies uh, are the reasons that people are fascinated by the Blood Eagle. Yeah, yeah. So let's put aside the uh, the Harry Harrison and the modern interpretations of this thing. Great. And let's dig into the historical sources of this kind of torture or method of death uh, that the mm-hmm. Vikings supposedly used. And I say supposedly because despite the fact that we have a number of primary sources um, from the Middle Ages that mention the Blood Eagle practice, it's very hard to conclude that they're accurately describing something that was done. Right. And it's important to note also, uh, as we're getting started, that when we look at these historical sources, we have a large number of them, but they're describing only two or three incidents, mm-hmm. right? That we've got multiple sources describing the same incident, and then multiple sources describing a different incident. Yeah. Uh, but there's only a couple of moments in these texts when the Blood Eagle was supposed to have been performed. Right. And what complicates matters further is that um, if we take our our notion of the blood eagle, which is to say that the blood eagle is supposed to be carving uh, into someone's back and pulling their lungs out through the slits that you've carved Mm -hmm. and letting the person die. Um, That's kind of what the blood eagle has come to to be, as that passage shows. If you look through the primary source materials, and there's about seven or eight or so, there's less than ten references to blood eagle being done. And in each of those ten references, we've got a slightly different variation on what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you remember um, from the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons, we have a very clear description of what goes on. It's when mm-hmm. um, or when Ivar captures King Ella, he asks for a person who's skilled wood carver to come along and carve an eagle on his back as carefully as possible, and the eagle shall turn red with blood, as he says. Um, In this case, we're just having someone carve the image of an eagle on the back, according to the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons, but that's just not the end of the story. And the indication is that this is, um, that it's a combination of blood loss and presumably terror Mm -hmm. um, that kills him. Right. Because the text just sort of says, and he died of this. Yeah. And I think Uh, in in this case, the eagle is supposed to represent a sign of victory or something like mm -hmm. that. And you're carving the sign of victory into the person's back. And it's going to be very, very painful and nasty. And then you can post his body somewhere and say, look Mm -hmm. what what I did. Right. And then, of course, um, even this one incident is described very differently in multiple texts. Right. So in the tale of Ragnar's sons... We're told that Ivar and the brothers now remembered how their father had been tortured. Mm -hmm. They had an eagle carved on Ayla's back and then had all the ribs severed from the backbone with a sword so that the lungs were pulled out. Yeah. Right. So we're getting much closer to that description that we have in the Harry Harrison novel. Yeah. So they, they, it's interesting because the tale of Ragnar's sons, that Thatter, it it combines these two elements. The first, mm-hmm. we're going to carve an eagle. Then we're going to, you know, cut in and spread the uh, the ribs and, and pull the lungs out. Saxo Grammaticus does something uh, interesting as well. He says mm-hmm. um, they ordered his back. And here we're still talking about King Ella and, uh, and Ivar. 
They ordered his back to be carved with the figure of an eagle, exulted because at his overthrow they were imprinting the cruelest of birds on their most <laughs> ferocious enemy. So there's Saxo kind of trying to describe the, the meaning or mm-hmm. interpret what's going on here exactly. But he goes on with that. He says, not satisfied with inflicting wounds, they salted the torn flesh. <laughs> so in this case, they're not going to be spreading the ribs. We're just going to throw salt, which I think actually right. might suck worse. Well, I, th- I feel like once you've already had your back flayed open, uh, whether or not there's salt in it is almost irrelevant. I mean, it's it's not as if it's going to be less fatal because they didn't salt it. Yeah, I guess. Um, another uh, version comes from uh, from the Knutsdrapa by Siegfried Thorstason. And this is, uh, a lot of this has been made of this particular line, I think because mm-hmm. in part because Siegfried Thorstason is important because he's probably the closest to the um, actual events in terms right. of uh, in terms right. of when he wrote his poetry. But let's be clear, this is still, uh, when we say the closest, we're still talking about a text being written nearly 170 years mm-hmm. after the event is supposed to have taken place. Yeah, and for we're all still we, looking at a very long distance. For all we know of Siegfried Thorthersen's work, it's it's preserved in older works as well. So mm-hmm. it's hard to say. But um, right. basically, the poem goes, "And Ivar, who dwelt at York, had Ella's back cut or incised with an eagle." And this is a translation that I've gotten from Roberta Frank. So what Roberta Frank is trying to do here, I think, is is show us that the uh, blood eagle does not involve a splaying of ribs or anything like that. Um, but she offers the interpretation that the back is being cut with the image of an eagle. Or she also uh, poses the possibility that uh, Ivar is using an eagle to attack the body of uh, An of actual Ella. bird. Yeah. <laughs> Have the bird kind of... Mm-hmm clawing at the uh the back right. with the sort talons. Of a trained a very specifically trained eagle yeah which would also suck a lot you know <laughs> well it would um it suggests a great deal of dedication to this particular method of torture yeah uh that you would have trained an eagle to attack the back of a victim mm-hmm. but um, um i can't imagine but uh, so she's and she's suggesting that it's actually an eagle not for example um, a torture implement in the shape of an eagle's claw mm-hmm. or the actual claw from an eagle yeah. that they're using to cut him open, yeah. but that it's actually a living eagle that right. has somehow been convinced to attack its back. So it's important to, for, for the Roberta Frank interpretation to note that there's two possibilities. One, that we're getting a carving of an eagle on the back, or mm-hmm. two, that we're having the back be attacked by an eagle. Right. And the former seems, based on the other primary sources... Seems the more likely scenario. The the latter requires an interpretive leap that is certainly within the realm of possibility, but requires that we sort of make a great deal of assumption about what is meant by carved an eagle or incised an eagle. Yeah, yeah. Um, we see the blood eagle popping up in a number of other texts. You mentioned the Heimskringla. Um, it shows up in the saga of Harold Fairhair, who you might remember as the guy who sends all the uh, disgruntled Norwegians fleeing towards Iceland. Um, he mm-hmm. prompts the settlement of Iceland. In that saga, we see Earl Einar going up to Hafdan, and it says he cut the blood eagle on his back in this fashion, that he thrust his sword into his chest by the backbone and severed all the ribs down to his loins and then pulled out the lungs. And that was Hafdan's death. Um, we see this same exact story told in Orkneyinga saga in chapter 8. Um, it reads like this, and that's where they found Hafdan long leg. Einar had his ribs cut from the spine with a sword and the lungs pulled out through the slits in his back. He dedicated the victim to Odin as a victory offering. Now, in this story, Einar is actually uh, attacking Hafdan for the murder of Einar's father, mm-hmm. Earl Roenwald. 
Yeah. Uh, and so in both of the situations that are described in the primary sources, we have sons using the blood eagle to avenge the death of their father. Right. Now, that's a very specific moment. Uh, and because of that, uh, the definition... And, of course, whenever I look to the dictionary for a definition, uh, I, I'm reminded of uh, Owen Barfield telling me that only children use a dictionary to settle an argument. But the uh, the Cleesby Vigfusson Icelandic English Dictionary defines the blood eagle the, uh, as a cruel method of putting to death in the heathen times, practiced, as it seems, only on the slayer of one's father, if taken alive in battle. Hmm. The ribs were cut in the shape of an eagle and the lungs pulled through the opening, a sort of vivisection. So, so it's very literal, taking taking all these sagas at face value, which I exactly. think is... Exactly. Well, not is, only taking them at face value, but assuming that every detail is actually a required element of the blood eagle. Right. Right. That it has to be pr- practiced only on the slayer of one's father, only after having captured him alive in a battle, only with this specific cutting where you cut the shape of an eagle and then pull the lungs through the incisions, and in doing so, sort of leave the person to slowly, I suppose, suffocate to death. Mm-hmm. Um slash bleed to death, uh, but that they're assuming that every element of it must be in place in order for it to be the the blood eagle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that mm-hmm. simply sort of finding a victim and killing him with this isn't enough. It has to be just this one kind of revenge. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to me, too, that it takes on a religious um, uh, connotation, and that only really comes about through the description in Orkney Saga, where it says that he dedicated the victim to Odin. But then mm-hmm. if you jump into the the scholarship and the, the history of Vikings, I mean, one of the, the great books is by Gwyn Jones. He describes the blood eagle like this. He calls it an inhuman rite um, and then <laughs> says, it probably had a moral or religious as well as a sanguinary significance for its perpetrator. Again, treating it like it actually happened. Um, right. It was unhappily no fiction, he says, but owes its eminence in pseudo lore almost entirely to fiction from the exultant Fornaldarsogr to the frisson-seeking 19th century. So his argument is that this was a real thing performed by people in sort of their barbaric primitivism, Mm -hmm. but that then it's been sensationalized in subsequent literature and made much more um, a feature than it ever would have been sort of in the lives of these people. That's right. That it's... uh, So I think sort of in line with that argument in Klesia-Vikvison, that this was a very rare thing to do and one that you were only called upon to do in very specific circumstances, mm-hmm. but that we, the audience, in our bloodthirsty, savage ways, uh, prefer to hear these stories. Right. But not everybody's so convinced by that. And in mm-hmm. fact, um, there's some interesting arguments out there that come from uh, a number of different scholars. Um, but you can see this argument made in the footnotes uh, to Saxo Grammaticus's description of the Blood Eagle. And also in mm-hmm. Rory McTurk's uh, studies in Ragnar Saga Lothbrokar and its major Scandinavian analogs. Both of them refer to the scholarship of uh, De Vries from 1928 and Lukman from 1976. And in both cases, they say our concept of the blood eagle comes from a partial misunderstanding of the passages that the uh, authors are looking at. Specifically, they say it involves the information about the ribs and the confusion Mm -hmm. of the Latin word eculus, which means rack, and aquila, which means eagle. And from this confusion, they uh, come to the conclusion that there's some kind of blood eagle being cut on Ella's back. Uh, when in reality, um, it might have something more to do with a rack than an eagle. So essentially what they're agreeing then is that this is torture, but the sort of the stylized part of it, wherein you're carving an eagle, is not part of it. 
right. that this is a misunderstanding of the word rack. So in other words, to to torture somebody with an implement, stretching them or racking them. Right. And so this turns out to be just uh, maybe a scribal error of some kind. And hmm. from that scribal error, that simple confusion in, term, in, in Latin terminology, we have a whole culture of Viking barbarism evolving. And the question is, how likely is it how likely is it that that error would be repeated in half a dozen texts mm. uh, being produced in multiple countries uh, around the same time, within a century or so of one another? I don't know. The way I look uh, at it sometimes, though, with with these texts, especially when you start comparing them, um, they're really just plagiarizing each other, right? Certainly they are. They're, they're um, all looking to a point of reference of a specific act of torture, starting with, it sounds mm-hmm. like, the torture of King Ella. And uh, one person gets it wrong, but the next person looking at that book that's available is seeing how that person got it wrong and so on. It, it, it becomes right. a motif in, in the literary culture. Right. So we sort of have two traditions here. One is the death of King Ella. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I suppose more broadly, the deaths of English kings at the hands of the Ragnarsons. Right. right. Since we have Abu Fleury, who actually does say that it's King Edmund who suffers this fate. Right. Um, and then the other tradition is uh, Halfdan Longleg being killed by Einar Ronvaldsson in revenge for the death of his father. Yeah. Right. And so we have these really only two traditions that need to be explained, not half a dozen separate sources. Right. Well, and what uh, Roberta Frank, we'll jump back to Roberta Frank's ideas. Um, she mm-hmm. wrote an article called Viking Atrocities. And in this, she makes the argument that while this uh, may have actually taken place, this blood eagle sacrifice, she also presents the possibility that this is just 13th century Scandinavians or early Christian writers who are trying to, as she says, invent complex atrocities for their pagan forebears to commit. Um, mm-hmm. That this is something that the the early Christians would have been looking to do to distinguish themselves from the Vikings or to simply show the the barbarism of the Vikings themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to we have to look with a uh, a more critical eye at the things we find in in medieval texts that describe the barbarism of of ancient cultures or early mm-hmm. medieval cultures. Right now, and of course, um, there's yet another uh, argument that's been put forward, and one that I actually find really interesting, which is Larissa Tracy's argument mm-hmm. um, in uh, Torture and Brutality in Medieval Literature, in which she says that the blood eagle seems to be Largely post-mortem. Mm. Uh, so, in other words, the image of the eagle being carved, yes, but upon the foe's back after death. Interesting. Uh, so that while it's a gruesome moment, she says, while gruesomely dramatic, it does not constitute torture. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's desecration of a corpse. It's not torture of the living. So is this like tagging the victim? Essentially, yeah. I mean, this is uh, that we know... Desecration of corpses was, um, if not regularly practiced, at least um, sufficiently familiar to people that it appears in sagas regularly. Okay. Uh, well, we've seen this ourselves just recently when we covered Henthor's saga, when we had uh, Herstein, uh, who in fact was avenging the death of his father, um, attacking and killing his enemy Henthor, and then uh, desecrating the corpse by chopping off the head and taking it with him as a souvenir. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. So we we... No, and of course, there's, I mean, there's any number of other examples in the sagas of people taking away parts of their victims. But I mean, right now what we're doing is we're moving more and more toward a discussion of this as if it were a literary motif. That's right. Right. Or, or something that has a kind of legendary background, perhaps as a post-mortem, mm-hmm. uh, desecration or what have you. Uh, and not everybody agrees that it is a literary motif. Uh, some people actually think it's historically verifiable or historically likely. 
Right. Despite Roberta Frank's uh, insistence that this is uh, very likely the creation of uh, a Christian imagination, you have a lot of scholars that take issue with this, um, both with her, her concept of what it might be if it did happen and her concept of, of it never happen- happening at all. Um, Alfred P. Smith, for example, uh, calls her basically a revisionist. Um, and takes issue with the idea that um, she sees it as just a literary motif in a heroic genre. He says that she does this, or people like her do this, in the face of evidence from Icelandic sources themselves, as well as from much earlier accounts of Old Norse behavior in the written records of their victims and their enemies. And I just, um, I think it's an interesting comment that he makes just because we're all looking at the same sources. Roberta Frank is looking at the same sources. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Alfred P. Smith, like many of the other people we've talked about, they're taking the sources at face value as though they represent reality. Um, and I, I'm just not so sure that that's the case. I mean, it seems like almost what we're looking at here is one of the oldest arguments around the sagas, uh, which is their the their basis for historical claims. Right. right? How much we can rely on them as a record of events. Mm-hmm. Right. It's that it's that old argument. Um, are the sagas history? Mm. Uh, and ultimately, something like the Blood Eagle comes down to how much of what's in the sagas you regard as historical and how much of it you regard as literature. Right. I mean, there's obviously a mixture. Um, sure. But we have to look at them as literary texts. Primarily, they're written by mm-hmm. authors hundreds of years after events. Um, they are relying course, on oral memory, of course. And so that's what complicates things a little mm-hmm. bit. And of course, when you're looking at something like this, where the primary text that we have to look at are themselves purporting to be some of them more literary, some of them claiming to be more historical. Mm-hmm. That only muddies the water further. Yeah, I wonder you how have we Saxo would... Grammaticus claiming as an historian to record this event that occurred. Yeah, uh, we are sort of in this position then of having to look at Saxo, acknowledging, of course, that Saxo Grammaticus is himself very much a literary writer. Sure. Not what we would think of in the modern day as an historian in terms of his sources or in terms of his uh, methodology. Absolutely. Yeah, he includes uh, uh, stories of, of giant snakes and dragons in his right, in his history, right. right? And I don't well, think any of us believe which, that those exist. Have you been to the National Museum of History? I've, I've seen many giant lizards there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, good point. <laughs> um, but so I think what we're – yeah, the Blood Eagle is one of those situations where um, – how much of it is what you wish to be true? Yeah. Right? How much of it is something that you want to believe? And this is sort of what I think uh, Roberta Frank is arguing. Right? But there's that thrill of thinking about people long ago and far away doing these horrific things to one another, mm-hmm. uh, which we can then read about and get that that uh, vicarious thrill uh, from the comfort of our easy chairs while drinking a soda. Yeah. Right, that there's no uh, there's no danger to us, and yet it gives us that little thrill of mortal danger. Yeah, uh, that you begin to wonder is this is something that C.S. Lewis used to say that if you hear something horrible and then you learn it's not true, are you disappointed? And if so, huh. <laughs> what does that say about you? Yeah, that do we want the blood eagle to be true because we believe it fits the historical evidence, or do we want the blood eagle to be true? Because it fits what we dream Vikings would have been like. Yeah. And we have that, uh, we constantly have that conflict with uh, our own uh, idea of what the Vikings were and how they behaved. And we go back and forth. It seems like every other year you have mm-hmm. a story of the Vikings and their, their cruelty followed the next year by 
um, how civil they were and they were merchants right. and traders and, and this and that. So we're constantly trying to recover their character and then restore this uh, romantic mm-hmm. notion of their violence. Right. As we as we record this, the British Museum has just put out put together a display which apparently uh, moves a great deal in the direction of the Vikings were violent and terrifying and barbaric mm-hmm. um, in a kind of response to what they see as a couple of decades of this gentrification of the Vikings. Yeah. Uh, this ongoing debate in England, for example, as to whether the Viking invasions were a good thing or not. Sure. Uh, culturally. I think it depends on your perspective on that one, right? Well, of course it does. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, think, yeah, I think the Blood Eagle eventually comes down to this question of does the Blood Eagle exist because of what we wish Vikings were like mm-hmm. or because we actually have some shred of historical evidence that it was a practice? Right. Um, and in the end, I think what we have is primary sources, which are really secondary sources, Secondary sources, which are really tertiary sources, mm-hmm. uh, but no eyewitness accounts, which is certainly not definitive evidence against, mm-hmm. uh, but it means that we have to stop short of saying that we can prove from the evidence that the Blood Eagle ever occurred. Right. So let's conclude this way. Let's do. Uh, before we, we turn this uh, this question over to the, the broader world, our, our, our amazing listening audience, um, I want to ask you, do you think this is a literary motif or do you think that this is a, a real thing that happened and it's coming down to us through the, through the sagas accurately? Well, I've said that I think um, Larissa Tracy's argument is really an interesting one. The idea that this may have been a way of desecrating the bodies of the dead mm-hmm. um, rather than a torture practiced on the living. Uh, now, of course, that as well is speculative. Sure. Um, but I, when in doubt, I tend to come down on the side of uh, literary motifs. Yeah. Uh, on this particular issue. Not with everything to do with the sagas, but on this particular issue. Um, the sources are all devoted to either demonstrating the vigor with which someone avenges a death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... An outlandishly ornate death would be, or torture would be a way of avenging a death. uh, Yeah, uh, the more horrific, the better. Right. Uh, Or they're written to demonstrate the barbarism of Vikings uh, sort of in the way they practice uh, torture on their enemies. So there's an agenda in both cases that has very little to do with a desire to report events or to in any way, historically um, ground events. It has a lot to do with trying to make a, a narrative point, a rhetorical yeah, point, exactly. about the, the severity of the behavior of those conducting the Blood Eagle. Sure. And we could take King Edmund... How about you? We could take King Edmund as an example of, of how these literary motifs work, because in other stories of King Edmund's death, we have him being tied to a tree and shot yep. with arrows, right? Mm-hmm. And that's evocative of, uh, of the, the uh, martyrdom of St. Sebastian. Mm-hmm. King Edmund becomes the martyred king, right? And so there's there's clearly an agenda at work there. So I think I too come down on the side of, of literary motif more than anything. I don't doubt, which is probably tremendously disappointing to our audience. By I the know. Way. I'm, I'm sure sorry. there are some people listening to this who are really hoping that we'd say, no, no, this whole like knocking the ribs off the backbone one by one, pulling the ribs out, pulling the lungs out, seems like a lot uh, of work. Seem it is does seem like a lot of work, seems but I'm practical. sure there are some people who are going to be really disappointed to hear. That their planned tattoo of someone being blood eagle is going to turn out to be ahistorical. <laughs> well, it may be uh, ahistorical. I'm deeply sorry for that. It may be ahistorical, but it still means something to them, right? It captures the essence of that, uh, that, right. that right. beautiful culture of the Vikings, right. uh, even if inaccurately. 
<laughs> but that's okay. You're you're entitled to that. Um, certainly, we're we're not alone in thinking the way we think. But there's plenty of uh, big name people who believe that this is an actual mm-hmm. historical reality. Um, Absolutely right. John and I are, of course, literary scholars, and so it's not surprising that we come down <laughs> uh, on the side of motifs and not. We on probably the side should of... have brought in a historian for this one. Yeah, maybe we should have, but we didn't. Um, so anyway, it's our starting point. This is our first uh, saga brief. Yeah, I hope it made some sense to you. <laughs> but we would like to hear your opinions on this. Um, you, maybe you can do your own research. Um, most of the stuff that uh, you need to know about the Blood Eagle can be found um, using Google Books or things like that. Uh, I'd be curious to hear what you guys are, have to say about it. So uh, thanks for listening. We're going to be putting up more saga briefs from time to time as the muse moves us. Uh, so keep an eye out for them. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that we've been wanting to get into in the regular episodes that we just don't have time for, or that would be too much of a digression, yeah. like the Blood Eagle. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've already got a list of subjects to cover, but if there's anything that you'd like us to devote a saga brief to, just let us know. And how should they do that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> uh, the easiest way is to leave a comment on our blog at sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com or on our Facebook page, Saga Thing Podcast. Yeah, or you could send us a message on Twitter at sagathingpod. Is that all? No, no, no. You can also send requests to our email address, which is sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Anything else you want to add? Semaphore? Morse code? Rune sticks. I'm ignoring you. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with uh, another saga thing or saga brief. Depends on what you're looking for. Dann fyrir sér alvaran Þar rauður lögin brann Líðan lægir fyrir undan björgunum Líðan lægir fyrir undan björgunum fram uh, Have we stopped? Can, we, can I stop? Uh, we can keep recording in case you say something brilliant. Doesn't seem likely. No, um, not at all.